All right, so we're going to talk about the church on trial, the Inquisition, and the Crusades. So I'd like to, I know, right? These are two hot topics that uh, I really want to talk to you guys today about. And I first want to start out talking about why I'm talking about this. Um, I think maybe about five years ago, I happened across a book that written about some of the misconceptions about the Catholic Church, written by a, a non-Christian, by the way. And towards the end of the book, there was a little chapter on Russia and its immense campaign to completely eradicate any vestige of Christianity uh, or religion, for that matter, from its land. Uh, so Christians and Jews, mostly. And what I read there was something that I had never heard about. I read that 20 million, 20 million Jews and Christians, so mostly Eastern Catholics and other Catholics, were annihilated, murdered in horrible ways. When I read that, I was overcome by a couple feelings. One, horror at the thought of what had been done to these people, to my fellow Christians and my elder siblings in the faith. Two, a sense of what the hell? I never knew about this. I never learned about this in high school, which means that I know that my friends weren't taught this in high school. Why is no one talking about this? Just to give you a little snippet, after the Bolshevik Revolution, a uh, presidential commission was organized in, by the Russians in Russia. This is not the US president, this is, the, this is in Russia. To kind of get a look at, well, okay, let's look at, the, uh, let's look at what was done here. And this is a quote from that presidential commission, again, written by a Russian. Priests, monks, and nuns were crucified on the central doors of, of iconostasis, thrown into cauldrons of boiling tar, scalped, strangled with priestly stoles, given communion with melted lead, and drowned in holes in the ice. So um, I cried a little bit when I read that five years ago, and it also kind of lit my hair on fire for the reasons I gave you. And that fire kind of started to spread to other little places. And I started to have a strong, you could say, a strong feeling that I wanted, that, excuse me, let me start over. I thought to myself, what else is staring at us right in the face and we don't know about it? What are some other things that we as Catholics have staring us in the, faith that, in the face 
that have caused so much suffering and that cause Catholics to leave the church that we don't know about or are very ignorant about. Bishop Barron mentions a few of these when he talks about the main reasons that Catholics leave the faith is because they believe that church and uh, science and faith are mutually exclusive, right? Like, so for someone to leave because of that is just very painful. So I felt a similar um, calling to educate myself on these matters because there's no way that I could keep being ignorant on these on these things that have made have caused such a prof- profound suffering and global impact on the planet and on us as the church and on people nowadays and have shaped how people see the the church and the faith in such negative ways uh, that are completely completely constructed false specious. So that was the motivation behind um, me reading up on this and bringing this presentation to you guys. So the first one I'd like to talk about is the Inquisition. So when we mention the Inquisition, I think these two images are probably what first come to mind, right? Maybe some Monty Python. Um, And on a more serious note, horrible images of torture with fanatical church people hell-bent on punishment. Very bloodthirsty people. This is certainly the impression that his, uh, that writers at the time, so 12th century, 13th century, 14th, 15th, wanted us, even into the Enlightenment, wanted us to have, and modern historians as well, There was some formatting issues. I don't know why the word chart is there, but you can ignore that. (laughs) Witches being burned at the stake, heretics being burned at the stake, all extremely violent. One bloodthirsty bloodbath that lasted hundreds of years. This is the characterization that we popularly have. Okay, so first question, why the hate? So at the time, in the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, and then into the Enlightenment, there was a long period of people who existed during the religious and political wars of Europe. So at that time, the Reformation took place. Luther and his 95 Theses. Um, There was very, very bitter uh, clashes between Catholics, Lutherans, and other denominations. And it wasn't like today where like we don't like each other, maybe we don't talk to each other. This was like you will go out and kill uh, a person, a, a Catholic, if you're a Protestant, or vice versa. The religious and the political back then was a lot more enmeshed than it was today. So a lot of kings and uh, other rulers would back one side, Catholic or Protestant, depending on how the the winds of power were going. So you had mass slaughters of one group, okay, by by a power, okay, 
depending on which way he saw he or she, right, kings and queens, uh, the, the power shift coming and going. So at that time, to kind of clinch this point, uh, some particularly Dutch, French, and English Protestants okay, saw at that time the rise of Spanish power, because at that time that was a golden era of Spain's power. And at that time, we're also Protestants. So it's kind of two things going against the church. One, it's, it's Catholic and not Protestant. And two, it's mainly in Spain, which is having its golden era. And so in order to discredit the church and see, make Spain seem like a group of fanatics, Propagandists started writing what's called in, in Spain La Leyenda Negra, like the Black Legend, which is a whole slew of literature spread about the church and about Spain, which is totally spurious, totally a bunch of lies that exaggerated uh, a bunch of things that happened and fabricated a lot of lies on top of that. Uh, today, modern religious animists, well, we know a little bit about that. Here's a quote from a book I read. They are determined, this is the modern historians, they are determined to show that religion, and especially Christianity, is a dreadful curse upon humanity. So, you don't know if you know about the the four, the, um, the atheists, they're called the, the four horsemen, right? Dawkins and the rest, Sam Harris, who don't are not content to leave religion alone, but would be satisfied by extirpating it from the world. And the, the, the bottom two are quotes from historians. The church has left a legacy that fosters sexism, racism, the intolerance of differences, and the desecration of the natural environment. And another guy started his book on the Inquisition with the following phrase, a sentence, I should make one thing clear from the start. I despise the Catholic Church. So the animus is clear. Right? It's no question about that. Okay, so I'd like to go through... Oh, there was a slide. Here. Sorry, folks. This thing got converted one from one. Here we go. Okay. Excuse me. Thank you. Okay. So I'd like to go through uh, some of the main lies. But first, I want to say that this talk is not about the church did nothing wrong, right? The church is perfect. The church uh, has nothing to apologize for. Far from it. This is not about showing. Uh, trying to prove that point that would be impossible uh, did the church commit atrocities yes did the, did the church send people to be executed yes did the church cause a lot of suffering yes okay um, this talk is to show one that many of the claims that are made against the church one are grossly exaggerated and B, one B, uh, sometimes fabricated altogether, total lies. So I think I want to take this talk and kind of set the record straight. It's also important to keep in mind that it's often very different between what the church uh, hierarchy teaches uh, and wants to promulgate as doctrine or right behavior and what local 
bishops or priests or knights or lords end up doing. Right? I mean, we see that today. We have bishops in, in Germany blessing same-sex unions. Right? That's not what the Pope... We, we can't judge the church and the, and the papacy based off of what they're doing. Right? So it's happening now. It's been happening throughout all of church history. Okay, so it's very important to remember that. Right. So, what are the main lies and exaggerations regarding the Spanish Inquisition? Well, here's a good, the image alone gives you a good taste for how they wanted to characterize the Inquisition. First, that its main purpose was to persecute religious minorities and force them into orthodoxy. Two, that they executed enormous numbers of people, just left and right, that they were out to get you. Three, that torture led by the Inquisition was not only common, but horrendous. That this was a way that they got you to confess or get into, get into line, so to speak. And that this was used as a, as a, way, to, as a way to maintain its thought control over Europe. And four, that it was a legal sham perpetrated for greedy churchmen. In other words, it was an excuse to divest people of their property so that the church uh, and or the local priest or bishop could take that from the people that were being accused. Okay. So first, persecuting religious minorities and other hated groups. A little bit of background. At the time that the Spanish Inquisition, because there were other Inquisitions, but we're going to focus on the Spanish because it's the most well-known and it has the most, um, we have the most reliable documents covering it, which we'll get into in a moment. At the time, the Reconquista had just occurred. What is the Reconquista? This was literally in Sp that Spanish for the reconquering, right? The Moors had just been kicked out of Spain a short while ago, and slash were in the process of. The King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain had just finished united, uniting the kingdoms of Spain. Spain wasn't one monolithic thing. Europe in general was not. Okay, Spain was no exception to this. They had just finished uniting the kingdom at great cost. So what started to happen? You have lots of Christians living in Spain because it's a largely Catholic country, Christian. You have Jews who at that time, the greatest concentration of, of Jews in the world was in Spain. And then you had also a lot of Muslims who had been in there for 400 years. So you have a lot, you have a kind of a religious, um, a lot of religious groups, these three main groups living together. So what started to happen? Once the Muslims started, or had been conquered and were being kicked out, the Jews, in, in this time of peace, started to, to uh, convert to Christianity. Some of the Muslims did as well. Okay, this caused lots of friction because the what became known as the old Christians, who were the families who had been Christian all along, right, started to resent the new Christians, particularly the Jews, right, called the conversos. The Jews who had converted to Christianity were suspected of not being sincere in their conversion. Same thing with the Muslims. Why was this the case? Well, 
as always, there are good reasons and bad reasons. Some of the good, well, we won't say. <laughs> bad reasons and worse reasons. Uh, there were suspicions of the Jews who had, who had insincerely converted to Catholicism because they said those Jews uh, are not sincere and they want to depose right, the local power right, and are just waiting in secret, right? crypto Jews. Um, another reason, again, not so good, was that there was a, a resentment because those Jews quickly rose to prominence. There were many cardinals and bishops whose parents were conversos, Jews who had converted to Catholicism. So they were had high positions. So there was some resentment there. Um, regarding the Muslims, they were afraid that come a second invasion from uh, Muslim armies, the crypto Muslims would hand over the city to the army that would be incoming. So there was a lot of fear, resentment at that time. So what happened? A lot of mob justice, or mob injustice, led um, by Christians, started accusing Jews and Muslims of not being sincere and executing them themselves, right? Sham trials. So the king and queen asked the pope to commission an inquisition to go and help sort that out to help sort out who is sincere, who is not, and to put some order to that whole process. Why were the king and queen and the inquisition interested in sorting out who's sincere and who's not sincere? Well, if you're sincere, then you can tell everyone else, hey, stop harassing these people. And if you're not sincere, then we can say, look, if you're a Jew, you're a Jew. You know, Go be at peace being a Jew. Same thing with Muslim. Um, but it's not good for you to be saying that you're one thing that you're not. So the Inquisition, its primary mandate was to establish order in a process that had shed a lot of blood. So it was to establish peace, not to root out hated groups and kick them out and execute them. By the way, we're going to talk a lot about witches. <laughs> All right, that they executed vast numbers of people. So the estimates of these historians uh, range anywhere from 30,000 to 3 million people uh, burned at the stake, tortured, hanged. So there's kind of uh, two periods to the Spanish Inquisition. The first is less well-known, okay, less well-documented, and it's estimated that during the first uh, 50 years, about 1,500 were executed, unknown on executions. The church itself did, had no authority to execute anyone. Had no authority. So again, the image of a cardinal, right, or a bishop standing over and saying, you're gonna be executed, right, is false. So the, you might count this as a small distinction, but the church had no authority, it would remand the person to the local, to the civil authority to be executed. But it was never the church who did that. Also, I know I'm skipping ahead here, but execution was seen as a failure on the part of the church. The church's intention with um, with uh, the trials and uh, was to save the person's soul and to convert them from their heresy, because we also have to deal with heresy here. 
But so just to have that clear, it's often painted as execution being kind of a goal of the church that's on the, on the contrary, quite the opposite. So one fact that uh, I found very interesting was that from 1478, which was the inception of the, of the Inquisition until 1700, we have very, very exact notes on every single trial, 44, upwards of 44,000, I think it's 44,700 and something trials that were detailed word for word in secret, which means the people, kind of the stenographers, taking down notes of all of these trials, including all of the torture sessions, had no reason to believe that this would ever be known to anyone else but themselves and their the um, inquisitorial authority that they were handing this over. So there's excellent reason to believe that these are very accurate. In fact, Joan of Arc's trial is uh, recorded word for word, and they made a movie out of it, by the way. So between 1478 and 1700, total of 826 people were executed. That is 1.8% of those brought to trial. Okay, so take a moment to kind of put that in perspective. That's, I hope I'm doing my math right here, 98.2, is that right? 98.2% of those who appeared before the inquisitors were set free, sometimes with dependence, but were not executed. Okay, that is very different from the image that we have nowadays. Again, the main aim of the Inquisition was to arrive at a conversion of the person, right? So they would invest, they would um, obviously investigate insincere versus sincere conversions, but they were also interested in rooting out heresy. So the object was to get the person to convert, realize what it is that they had said that was a heresy, okay? Speak with them, inquire. It was not to punish them. Now on the topic of witches, the number of witches was greatly, greatly exaggerated. Many people claimed that millions were executed. The number across all of Europe was closer to 60,000, of which only a few dozen were executed by the church. And again, these were not, these were not um, victories for the church. These were often people who were practicing magic and spells, who um, All of the witches who were executed, sent to be executed, were people who had been given, who were on trial three or four times before they were judged and convicted and then sentenced to die. So these were not people who were captured um, and didn't know what was happening and then were sent to death. These were people who had been tried three or four times for the same thing. Okay, line number three, torture was common and horrendous. So first of all, context is extremely, extremely important for this whole talk, right? So one of the key ideas for this whole talk for both the Inquisition and the Crusades is context. So first of all, torture was common to all the courts of Europe. Everyone did torture, everyone used it. Not only that, but the civil courts used torture as a punishment. If you were found to be treasonous, you would be tortured as a punishment. 
The church, the church never used torture for punishment. It was used to, again, not that this is right, it was horrible, but it's important to realize that the church never did it for punishment, and it's important to realize that it was always with the aim of having the person confess and then convert. And 98% of all cases involved no torture. In fact, there was a Dominican bishop called Bernardo Gui who wrote a handbook he was an inquisitor as well, who wrote a handbook to his fellow inquisitors telling them how to be good and ethical inquisitors. And in that manual, he urged against torture. So there was not even a unanimous um, spirit regarding torture even within the inquisition itself. Third, uh, fifth, there were very strict protocols that had to be observed when torture was used. I'll get to those in a moment. And sixth, the inquisitors themselves were very skeptical of any evidence that was evinced through torture. They were well aware that people would say anything in order to make the torture stop. So there was a rule that said that any confession that was taken from, uh, using torture had to be reiterated by the person the next day um, without the use of any torture. So again, not the best, not good, but it still speaks to one, a great contradiction in the image that were given of a bloodthirsty and torture happy inquisition to a more progressive right, church that was aware of the psychology of torture right, and did not use it as punishment. Okay, so here are a few of the guidelines. There are more, but first of all, it could not exceed more than 15 minutes at a time. I shouldn't say at a time. It could not exceed 15 minutes, and it could only occur once. A person could not be tortured more than once. Secondly, there could be no danger to limbs, which is, which is contradictory to many of the images that we get of people being put on the rack, or people being having their, um, th these are some examples that they gave of uh, knees being smashed, or feet being um, uh, boiled or put on hot hot metal. Uh, there was no shedding of blood allowed. Now, you can still cause a lot of pain and horrible torture to someone within these guidelines, sure enough. But again, the point here is not to show that the church did not do, uh, did not cause pain to people, but to show that A, within the context of the time, the church was progressive, and the church was not out to cause as much suffering as it could, was not malicious, but in fact was going against the grain of the time in order to lessen the suffering of the people that it was that it had in front of it. Also, a doctor had to be present, right? I won't I won't vouch for the uh, for the expertise of any medieval doctors, but hey, they tried. All right. That it, uh, fourth line, that it was a legal and ethical sham. First of all, that the word inquisitio in Latin means a collection or a gathering of data. Okay, can we take a moment to appreciate, right, that we have here a process whose very name is a collection or a gathering of data at a time 
when trial by combat was still a thing. You have lords and kings, right, saying, is the person innocent or guilty? Hmm, I don't know. Let's fight it over, right? And over here, uh, we have the church going out, collecting evidence, weighing it, bringing forth, right, uh, testigos, witnesses. Thank you. Um, so again, context. In fact, Ioannis Monacus was a 12th century cardinal member of the church who was the first person, he was a kind of lawyer also, by the way, who was the first person to establish the idea of innocent until proven guilty and to codify it into the Western. I found out something very interesting. The idea of innocent until proven guilty is not in the Bill of Rights, it's not in the Constitution, right? It's not in the Declaration of Independence, right? It's not, I don't think it's even in the Magna Carta, right? So very important here. So again, the church as corrupt and eager to convict and execute, again, not at all fair characterization. Uh, another criticism that is levied, the people during the Enlightenment, there was a quick shift, a very rapid shift that was eager to portray the church as obscurantist, as thought control, and wanting to keep people ignorant and dumb and subservient and docile. And this same Enlightenment was eager to lie and say that the witch hunt, the witch craze, reached its height during the Inquisition. Right? And the Inquisition was one of the main players in this crazy witch hunt. This is not true. The witch craze reached its peak during the Enlightenment. In fact, some of its um, big players, I didn't mention all of them, but Hobbes and Robert Boyle, when you take in chemistry, Boyle's Law, okay, that same guy, were proponents of witch hunts. So, so much for that. During the, 15, the century of 1540 to 1640, in the city of Aragon, so each city, or many of the major cities had their own inquisitorial branch, so to speak. During that century, only 16 witches were tried and executed. Again, no witches should be executed, right? But in the face of hundreds and thousands of, of witches being tried and executed, the church was a very, again, progressive and logical force. And I, I found this interesting too, the anti-Catholic Henry C. Leah, who wrote a history really bashing the church, himself had to concede that the witch hunt was rendered comparatively harmless in Spain due to the wisdom and firmness of the Inquisition. And there's a very cool story about the seven witches in Barcelona, which serves to show the church's methods and attitude. In Barcelona, again, there was one of these inquisitorial branches, and the head of each of those branches was what was called the Suprema, which was, you could say, like the head central inquisitory bosses, right? Um, the most famous boss of this was the Grand Inquisitor, for a while the most famous was Torquemada. Okay, so one of these branches in Barcelona was trying seven witches, and the Suprema, 
the head HQ heard about this and dispatched one of its own inquisitors to go look into the matter. When he got to Barcelona, he found that the way that they had gone about the the um, the trials was not good. Okay, it was inaccurate, and it was done in a corrupt manner, involving a lot of the very interested uh, civic authorities who ended up wanting the property of lots of these people, of, of, of several of these witches, to take for their own. The Inquisitor fired all of them, fired all of these uh, civil authorities who had been trying the witches. Several of them were executed, and a few of them were exiled. And by the time he got there, five of the witches had already been executed, sadly, but he was he managed to save two of them. So the I think that the story shows that the church was willing to punish people who were not doing things correctly. Okay, this is another inquisitor that was sent to um, another city. I, I thought this was great. He was sent over to investigate allegations of witchcraft and wizardry, and he had this to say. I have not found this, this is after a year of conducting uh, interviews, I have not found the slightest evidence that a single act of witchcraft has really occurred. There were neither witches nor bewitched until they were talked and written about. In other words, he had he was discouraging people from he was discouraging priests to preach about witchcraft. And I think it's interesting that he was well aware of the psychology that could occur where people would start to see witchcraft where they were hearing about it. So again, a progressive church that was very well acquainted with the psychology of human beings and was using it to help pacify and put order to the whole situation. All right, moving on to the Crusades. Some of the, again, lies that it was imperialistic and aggressive, both. That it was for loot and that it was used by lords and kings who had more sons in order to relieve tensions in their own kingdom, right? Because if you have one son, well, he's the heir, no problem, but if you have two or more, they're gonna be fine. Well, so go send them somewhere else and that'll relieve tensions. And finally, that the church was uniquely guilty of horrible war crimes uh, that occurred during the Crusades. So let's look at that claim that it was an imperialistic and aggressive move. Imperialistic um, in, as far as uh, trying to grab land for its own and colonize and aggressive in the sense that it was dominating a, an otherwise peaceful uh, people uh, in an attack that was unprovoked. Okay, first, this map is in the six from the six hundreds to the seven hundreds a map of the Muslim Empire at its greatest extent. Okay, I I want us to appreciate this map. One thing that you may not see is Italy and Sicily up there, especially Italy, should have a yellow dot in Rome 
This is something that I was shocked to find out. Not only did the Muslims conquer almost all of Spain and Portugal, but they even sacked Rome. They even reached the heart of Christianity and sacked it. Now, they did not get past the Aurelian walls, right? But still, the vows at Otranto and Lepanto, what's that about? These are two battles, Lepanto being the more famous one. But at Otranto, the Muslim the uh, leader, the caliph, promised to join the twin sisters. What are you talking about? He's talking about Constantinople, which was already theirs, and he vowed to take Rome, right, and join the, the twin cities, right, the two towers. And at Lepanto, the uh, caliph then vowed to dominate Europe in one large caliphate, right? So these are how do how do we know these things? These are written by these rulers themselves in letters and sent as kind of like uh, bluffs or kind of uh, like warnings to the to their enemies. Okay, so why then? Why then did the church embark on these crusades? First, to defend and protect against the fact that firstly, two-thirds of, Christ, of Christendom had been taken over. All of Northern Africa, all of Northern Africa used to be Christian. That's where St. Augustine was from. Egypt, excuse me, Egypt used to be Christian as well. And this was taken over Spain as well, and the Holy Land. So the Holy Land had had uh, been conquered a while ago, but it had been um, a place where pilgrimages were often taken by Christians all over Europe. At this time, then, what started to happen? You had Muslim forces who were harassing and murdering the pilgrims. Okay, this is in the uh, 11th century. This started to happen worse than before. Again, I'm kind of clumping the Crusades into one idea, but there were many, many Crusades, right? We typically number them as four, but there's a lot more. I'm not going to get into that. The I'm kind of taking it as one concept here. Um, there was one, well, I'll get into that later. Uh, secondly, to protect our fellow Christians, the the concept, the idea of pilgrimage to the Holy Land was extremely important. I know Father organized a pilgrimage a short while ago, okay? Back then, there was, the church had a greater eschatological clarity to life. In other words, they had much more present, probably because they had much shorter lifespans, okay? They had a much clearer, the idea that they were gonna die and they were gonna face their maker. Okay, so the ability to go to the Holy Land and visit the place where Christ, who had died for them, right, had lived, walked, eaten, suffered, and died for them, was a clearer, more powerful sign than it was for us today. We might have lost a little bit of that appreciation today. Another reason why it was so important was because the knights, the church was always wary of killing, but that was one of the job descriptions of knights. So these knights, these Christian knights, had a bit of a cognitive dissonance when it came to 
their job because on the one hand, well, what do knights train for their whole life since they're a child? Well, get good at killing, right? And defend your people. Well, killing is also against the fifth commandment. So going to the Holy Land was a penance that was often imposed on knights and uh, in order to absolve them and help do penance for murders that they had committed. And uh, which is my last point, expiation. Right? It was extremely important for them as a way to do penance for their sins. Okay. The other next point for loot. There's a misconception that going over to the Holy Land got many of these crusaders wealthy. And that they went over there, robbed, got a bunch of loot, and then came back and enjoyed their spoils. This could not be further from the truth. Going over to the Crusades, crusading, was enormously wealth, uh, excuse me, enormously expensive. In fact, many lords basically bankrupted themselves, bankrupted themselves in order to go. Right? You have the cost of your horses, your armor, your weapons, all of these were hugely expensive. The the food, not only that, but then staying there, which is my next point on it being treated as a colony. So extremely expensive. Even anti-Catholic historians concede that the wealth traveled from west to east. Finally, um, the the claim that the Holy Land and the surrounding area was treated as a colony, which, what is a colony? It's a land ruled by a homeland that is economically exploited. Again, totally made up. The land there was very infertile. It's rocky. It's desert. Those of you who have been can attest to that. It's hard to grow anything there. If these knights had wanted to go crusading for wealthy, they could have done it next door in Spain. They could have gone, right? They could have saved themselves a trip, could have saved themselves a lot of blood and money and just gone over to Spain, right? Because there were plenty of Muslims there to conquer and land to take for themselves if that's what they were so inclined to do, okay? But they went, okay, not to Spain, but to the Holy Land. Finally, war crimes. The church is uniquely guilty of horrible war crimes that exceeded anything that had been witnessed at that time. Vicious lies. Firstly, firstly, it is important to put it in context, okay? And I want to give the siege of Jerusalem as a quick example. When wars were engaged in, there were rules that were observed by people, right, by the warring parties. If you give up your castle or land or whatever it was quickly, then you are allowed certain, you are afforded certain, we could call them privileges or certain um, deals. You can leave peacefully. If you don't, well, listen, you get to roll the dice and maybe beat us at the siege, 
But if we if we beat you, we're coming in, ready or not. Okay. So everyone knew this. Everyone knew this. Everyone practiced this. So when the Christian forces came into Jerusalem, they're accused of massacring everybody without without thought, right? Dealing death and judgment left and right. Firstly, that's an exaggeration. There were large groups of Jews who were let out, and how do we know this? They wrote letters about what happened to their families, right? And we have those letters. And uh, yes, and secondly, um, you, you, you could say, well, we have historical records written by Christians of how horrible it was. Okay, this is a bit of an old goal by Christianity at the time. All right, so other Christians who were not there, who were not present, wrote about what a glorious victory this capture of Jerusalem had been. Right, you can see why they'd be motivated to do this. Right, the Holy Land captured by the Muslims, and finally, finally, after so many years, reconquered by Christianity. Right, there's a bit of a triumphalist feeling there, so they wanted to write about what an amazing victory this had been, right? Kind of a, an Avengers type victory here. So they exaggerated the language, okay? Little did they know, right, that hundreds of years later, they would, that would come back to bite the church in the butt, right? But we know that they, there was an exaggeration of language by Christians who were not there writing about the siege of Jerusalem. Secondly, it is the um, certain authors write about how shocking and almost irresponsible the silence surrounding the massacres of Christians at the hand of Muslims have been. Again, not to compare evils, right? Not to do a contest of whose suffering is greatest. Simply to put it in context and to say, look, the, first of all, the church is not unique here. Second of all, what it did, mm, not the same as what it suffered. Again, at Odessa, the Muslims came and massacred all the Frankish Christians. Then when the Armenian Christians came in, the Muslims went back and annihilated all of them. In 1268, at Antioch, the Muslim forces annihilated the Christians so thoroughly that kind of Game of Thrones style, right? The the noble family lines were eliminated completely. No historical record of them after that point whatsoever. 1453, the fall of Constantinople. The the records of the massacres and other horrific things that the Muslims did are well noted. Again, this is not Muslim bashing. bashing. This is not Islam bashing. This is simply putting things in context. Finally, the children of Malta. This is very interesting, very shocking to me. Wherever the Muslims went conquering, and again, I'll draw a distinction here that's important, they would enslave whoever did not turn and uh, convert to Islam, they would put them into demitude, right? For them, the dimi, right, were those people who were second-class citizens who did not convert, 
And they said, look, you don't have to find the people of the book, the Jews and the Christians. You don't have to convert, but you'll have to pay a tax. Okay, well, what if you were poor and you, you couldn't pay the tax? Well, we'll take your firstborn son. They did that. Uh, I was shocked to find this historical fact out. And one of the big battles of Malta, when the Muslims came, the first wave of Muslim warriors that attacked the Christians at Malta were the same sons that they had taken in lieu of the Dimi tax payment 15, 20 years earlier. Right? The sons they had taken, how horrible is that? Okay, so again, to characterize, again, kind of taking all of this as a whole, to characterize the the Crusades and the expansion of Islam and to say that they're the same thing, very inaccurate. Islam spread, conquering. And wherever it conquered, forcing people to convert or putting them into slavery or second-class citizenship. The Crusades were one, defensive, after two-thirds of Christendom had been taken over. Secondly, the Crusades were explicitly forbidden from conquering any lands that were not the Holy Land. In fact, during the Fourth Crusade, during the Fourth Crusade, uh, a, group, a band of them disobeyed the Pope, right? Sacked Constantinople for reasons I won't get into. They were owed payment, but they sacked Constantinople and said, "This is going to be ours now." They were all excommunicated by the Pope. Okay, so the church was serious. They were not allowed to. They were not out to conquer new lands. They were out there to defend, and they were out there to defend their fellow Christians, right? Okay, so that's the end of my short presentation. I hope you guys have learned a little bit about what the truth is surrounding the Inquisition and what the truth, uh, a little bit more about the truth surrounding the um, Crusades were. So. If you guys have any questions, I'm happy to answer those. Thank you very much.